Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games with kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that, Anchor. Also, uh, after uh, finally getting back into my own podcast through my app, um, I find that the listen function is still doing the thing that it was doing, which prompted me to uh, uninstall and reinstall in the first place. So, uh, yeah, I basically put myself through uh, a couple of hours of frustration and torment for no reason. Um, It sounds like... Even if I'm going to keep recording through the app, um, I may need to consider listening to podcasts uh, through a different a different medium. And uh, a lot of the call-ins and stuff and people have been talking about different podcatchers. Um, I'm an Android, so I would be needing some kind of an Android-friendly one. Um for those of you who have stopped listening to Anchor podcasts through the Anchor app, um, would I have to like literally search for each individual podcast individually? Like, you know, I, <clears throat> Anchor just knows all the all the podcasts that I follow. Um, presumably, listening through another um, another medium, I would have to like look up each individual one and add it to my list. Is that correct? Is there one where you can import things or I don't know. If you've got any advice, go ahead and phone in on that. Cause, um, it doesn't look like the app is getting any better. So, however, uh, this episode isn't uh, a rant about anchor. Um, this episode is about hacks, uh, specifically the Black Hack 2 and the White Hack, uh, White Hack 2nd Edition, because that's the one that I've got. So we'll start with the Black Hack. Um, I backed the uh, Black Hack 2nd Edition um, mainly on the strength of it, it was going to have a lot more random tables. Um, and since I really love random tables, and I especially love weird random tables, I love tables with things on it that I wouldn't have thought of myself because the kind of game I like to run is the game where nobody, even me, knows what's going to happen next. Um, and that's why I like random tables and that's why I like weird stuff is because, I mean, I could I could plan out something really elaborate, which I, I have done that before. Like I have planned out, um, let's see, my, my first ever starting area something like 48 or 50 miles um long so a couple of well anyways it it, i put a lot of stuff in there different uh terrains different set encounters different settlements different monster layers and stuff like that and I made a lot of really bespoke random encounter tables for each type of terrain and things like it was very designed, you know, it was very much like, um, this is what I think should be here. And, you know, the random stuff wasn't random. Like 
if you met a patrol, it was a patrol from somewhere, and the purpose of you meeting it was that you might get some information, like an adventure hook, to uh, go to a certain area that you might not otherwise have visited. So, because people who complain about random encounters are like, you know, you're doing this quest, and then suddenly you draw a random encounter, and now you get it completely sidetracked. So none of the random encounters were like that. They would all have fit into whatever was going on in the region. Um, so I, you know, I've totally done it that way. <clears throat> the The thing is, is that when you do it that way, it's pretty easy to fall into the trap of, oh, I've planned all this stuff out and the players aren't doing the thing I expected. Um, and, you know, the, the more, the more design you put into your, uh, into your adventures, the more likely you are to be frustrated when your players don't follow your design. So by not having a design, then you're like, well, you know, this whole thing is basically we're all just flying by the seat of our pants, so who cares, you know? It allows you to roll with whatever choices your players make because, hey, you know, you 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 weren't really planning much anyway. And, you know, instead of putting down a lot of rails that you hope they'll follow you uh you just see what they do do and then at the end of the day try to weave that into some sort of a coherent story and it doesn't have to be more than we did this and then we did this and then we did this um so yeah i like i've got really into random tables it's less work for me because i put in less prep time um it keeps it loose you know in terms of uh, my expectations and also certain types of uh, or certain certain random certain people's random tables are they're full of things ideas that I couldn't have come up with on my own which makes it exciting for me too it means that I'm almost as much a player as the players are because I don't know what I'm going to roll on this thing for instance I roll random monsters using maze rats because when you roll up a monster on maze rats, you have no idea when you start the process what you're going to end up with. Whatever it is, it's going to be unique and completely out of left field. So, so anyways, yeah, the uh, the idea that the new black hack would have a lot more random tables, but they would be in that black hack style. I was like, well, I think that's definitely worth whatever handful of dollars they needed for me to back it at the PDF level. Cause once again, not an expensive system. Um, I did back it at PDF only. Um, even though I probably could have backed it, backed it at print because, um, I believe it does print and ship from the UK actually. So, um, this is one that I probably could have gone print with, but I didn't. So, um, so I have the PDFs already. I don't know if the uh, official print copies have dropped yet. Um, or if they're still like in pre-order phase and are still awaiting fulfillment to the backers. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's why I got into it. Um, now the original black hack, so the, the new black hack is a lot bigger, a, a lot thicker than uh than the original black hack because of all those random tables and because it has 
rules for things that the original black hack didn't bother putting in rules for like um hex crawling and terrain and stuff and a lot of npcs and it has a sample tavern and a sample dungeon and it has ruling up random dungeons and has rules about poisons and diseases and drugs and you know so i mean they've really packed a lot into it now i really loved the the thinness and the sleekness of the original black hack and i really loved the cover which you you know you it's a pretty famous system, so you, you've probably seen the cover. It's just black with the kind of severed hand doing the metal horns. I really love that. I'm into metal anyway, so um, and I'm into things that are black. Um, if something is called black or the cover for it is black or almost all black, the chances are I'm going to shell out some money for it. Um, so listen up, if you've got a product and you want me to buy it, just call it black and make the cover black and I'll probably buy it even if it's a recipe book for macaroons. Although actually that that would be pretty valuable anyway because I don't know how to make macaroons. But yeah, I mean, things that are black or are called black are always going to attract me because I'm such an edgelord. The cover of the Black Hack 2, um, so it is a lot of black on it but it has a lot of little uh cartoonish drawings of of various things it's like they filled every bit of cover space with some random drawing of of something um i think to be honest the new cover says a lot about what the black hack uh second edition is and compared with the original black hack it's it's the black hack but with a lot of extra shit crammed into it. You know, the the original Black Hack, it's like, what is in the what's in here? Just metal horns, you know. What's in the Black Hack 2? Oh god, everything, you know. Um, so it's actually really good. I, I don't like the cover as much because there's so many drawings that it there ends up being a lot more white in it. Um, so the cover is less black, and I don't like that. But it is a good cover, and it it, it it does a good job of showing you what you're going to get. So delving right in, uh, the first thing we see, well, the first thing we notice is that the original Black Hack um, was like 20 pages long, and the Black Hack 2nd Edition is 126 pages long, so that's a big jump in content. The other thing we notice is on the title page, it says a comprehensive rules light old school fantasy role playing game. Whereas uh, the first the first black hack uh, called itself an OSR first edition hack. Um, so this is comprehensive. It's meant to be comprehensive. Um, now, when I first got it. Um, I scrolled until I found all the random tables because that was that was the main thing that I uh, that I invested for, um, and I had a glance through those and I really liked those. Um, but actually, I came to like it better when I went back to the beginning and started reading it um, because there are some changes to the rules which I think make it a stronger system overall. One thing I like, um, the, it begins with um, a description of what a role-playing game is and how it works and what some of the terminology 
are. And that section ends with a paragraph called The Spirit of DIY Tabletop RPGs. And it reads, The thing the Black Hack encourages above all is the freedom to mold the rules, customizing them both to suit the preferences and meet the needs of everyone playing. In other words, change the rules, hack it and make it yours. And that last sentence is in bold. Then we move on to an example of play, which is pretty much identical. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's exactly the same example of play as from the first black hack. So, um, the rules won't have changed that much. Um, However, the things that have changed, I think, are, are very much positive. The core mechanic hasn't changed. It's still a roll-under system. And by roll-under, it means that rolling your stat, like equaling your stat on the die, is a failure. Um, for me, that's what a roll-under system should be. Um, you do need to roll less than your, your relevant stat. And one thing I like the black about the black hack... Um, I'm I'm not I'm not still a hundred percent sold on using the roller under mechanic as the core mechanic, um, but if you're gonna do it, the black hack I feel does it right. First of all, it is roll under the stat, and they use that mechanic for everything. If you're attacking, you roll under your strength for a melee or under your dex for a ranged attack. If you're avoiding a melee attack, you roll under your strength. If you're avoiding a ranged attack, you roll under your dex. Um, saving throws, you're rolling under your stat. It's Everything is this, the exact same mechanic. And when we get to the white hack, we'll find that, first of all, roll, equaling your stat is still an, a success. So it's not roll under. It's more of a roll low system. But also... Um, in addition to your into in addition to the familiar six stats you have an attack value which you need to roll under in order to make a successful attack and a saving throw a single saving throw much like uh, swords and wizardry but again it's another thing you're needing to roll under um, and I, I feel like the black hack by just saying, look, you got your six stats roll under those stats and that's how we'll resolve everything that's nice clean. It, everybody it everybody can grasp it get their head around it and it applies to everything and that's what i'm looking for in a rules light system we have the same uh the same rules about time moments and minutes which i'm not a fan of i actually prefer rounds and turns personally but and we have the same abstract uh distances um close nearby far away and distant now um I use these when I run the white box, when I run Swords and Wizardry white box. Instead of rolling on, uh, what is it, 2d4, I think, um, for encounter distance, I just roll d4s. And if it's a 1, they're close. If it's a 2, they're nearby. If it's a 3, they're far away. And if it's a 4, they're distant. And I modify it based on the situation. For instance, there are some circumstances where it's impossible for them to be close or distant, in which case I just adjust it to the next most light the next most logical one so if they can't be close then th then a one means they're nearby if they can't be distant then a four means they're far away one thing i will say about about these although it's a great idea in principle using natural language to represent a game mechanic isn't always great um there's a there's a a youtuber called um 
well, his YouTube handle is like Ivan Mike something, but he's one of the OSR YouTubers, so it shouldn't be hard to find him. He did a a, um, a YouTube video about um, why it doesn't work to use natural language in place of uh, gamist language or numerical, you know, um, indicators um, when you're when you're needing to be precise in a game, and it's because the way that English works. English makes frequent use of synonyms, and far away and distant in natural English are synonymous. So it's very easy to forget which one of those actually means the nearer distance, and I get them confused myself. Um, so although I use those four settings, as you might you, you might say, I don't actually use the language at the table. I just remember that a four means there's three moves. That you'll you'll need three mo three moves to reach them, but none of that has changed the um, the distance and the time and the new black hat comes with a mini battle mat, um, just basically a a, bit, a grid of squares. Um, so although the uh, the original black hack was very much theater of the mind this one gives you the exact gives you the option of plotting out battles on um on a, on a battle mat now it's not a bad idea to put this in here but um it's just blank squares and i feel like if you were going to get into using minis and tokens and stuff like that and tactical combat which isn't a bad idea you would probably be better off using some of the more familiar options. You know, get your own uh, dry erase battle mat or, you know, Chessex battle mat and get your own minis and things like that if you're, if you're going to go down that road. Um, what I like better is at the bottom of this, there's the marching order. So again, it's little squares and you could just put everybody's D20 there or something like that. That way you say, okay... There's rear and there's front. Everybody put their marching order on here, and um, then uh, then there's a good visual representation of who's gonna fall into the trap first. So I, I think that's much more useful. I think um, including the blink battle mat as a, as an attempt to add value is a slight misfire, just because it's not it's not big enough, um, and there are better options if you're gonna if you if you know you're gonna go down the root of minis and mats and tactical combat, you know, you're going to need to just bite the bullet and get a chess X mat and some, you know, non-permanent markers and, you know, tokens and things like that. Now attacking and defending, as I said, work exactly the same way as rule under your stat. So, um, you know, I was thinking, well, so far so good. It's just like I remember it. And then I got to armor, and this is where I, I, I just flipped out because I think this is a much better way to do this. So, armor. Each piece of armor a character wears gives the player a pool of armor dice. Each armor die is a d6, and the number of d6s in the pool is equal to the armor value of the armor worn. For example, leather armor, AV2, gives a player two armor dice in their pool. If a character fails to defend or would take damage, they can take one armor die out of the pool and put it to one side and declare it broken. 
In return, this allows all damage from that attack or effect to be ignored. Armor dice that have been broken and put to one side cannot be used to ignore any further damage. After a rest, players with broken armor dice can try to fix them by rolling them. If they roll above the armor's AV, the die is no longer broken. If they roll on or below their armor's AV, the die is broken permanently until it's repaired. If all the armor dice in the pool are permanently broken, then the armor is destroyed. Armor values do not stack. Only the armor with the highest AV counts. Shields and helmets add one plus one each to the pool size. They do not modify the armor's AV value in any way. I think this is a great improvement over the original way armor worked, which was that um, armor absorbed damage. Now, I didn't have a problem with the fact that armor absorbed damage, that you that armor had armor points and they would take damage off that because, um, I mean, for instance, we, we saw that in... Um, melee you know the uh the fantasy trip uh combat system and it is a much more realistic way to handle armor but what i what i disliked about the black hack is that once the armor absorbed its full amount so for instance plate and mail is had eight armor points in the original black hack so once you once you'd ignored eight points of damage then your 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 armor wasn't going to absorb any more damage during for that day but you get all those armor points back after you had a long rest so that it's effectively regenerating the way that hit points regenerate in um in 5e and that didn't feel very old school to me i thought um What's happening to your armor as it's as it's no longer able to absorb damage? Is it getting dented or bashed? Are are you know if it's leather armor, are tears appearing in it? And how is that just going to mend itself after a good night's sleep? I just felt that it started with a good idea, and it didn't. It, it ended up giving you like a get out of jail free card, a very modern D and D style get out of jail free card. Whereas this armor dice thing. Um, so you, you are using the armor to absorb damage because the dice in your pool, you're using it to ignore damage. And then, you know, when you run out of dice, your armor is broken and you don't necessarily like when you roll it to see if it's permanently broken, maybe that represents you, you know, having a look at it, maybe pounding out the kinks in your plate mail or something like that. And you may discover then that it's 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 beyond what you can fix in the field, and you have to take it to a shop and repair it. Um, the uh, <clears throat> the damage and um, rules and stuff are are as per first edition, including the critical hit, which does double double damage. Um, I read a I read a rule system recently where. Um, when you roll a natural 20, you remove a point of your, of your target's AC, like their AC gets worse by one. And if you roll a natural one, your weapon gets worse by one point, like it loses one point of damage that it can do, or, or it's downgraded by one die or something. And then you have to pay like 10 or 15% 
of the item's value to get it repaired, and then it, and then it goes back to normal. Um, but I can't, I cannot now remember which system that was. Um, so I'm gonna have to look through what have I been reading recently because it's not here. I thought it was in the Black Hack Second Edition, and it clearly isn't because that's not the effect of crits. Um, but that's a good system, and I think that would actually work really well with the damage, with the armor value, and things like that. Or as a good rule of thumb for when you when you need to repair your broken armor, what it costs to repair it. However, in equipment and money, they actually do list um, what it costs to restore a broken armor die to certain types of armor. Then uh, the first of the the really cool drop charts um, comes in here. So there's a little comic booky picture of a rough warrior covered in tattoos and things like that. And there are um, four D12 tables scattered around it. And the higher, so you roll your damage on these tables, and whatever they roll, they'll fall onto one of these charts. And then um, you will, uh, and then whatever the damage you actually roll will determine what the what the effect is. I really like them, but some of them are pretty like are permanent. So, for instance, arms one da- one da- <clears throat> one hit point of damage if you if if the die landed on the arms list would be shattered knuckles. Um, two is fingers broken in a zigzag. Um. 10 is hand wrenched off. Like you're not going to fix that. You can fix broken knuckles and you can even fix broken fingers, but you can't grow a new hand. 11 is mangled stump, 12 is red fountain. Um and the head one, 8 points of damage, most of nose gone. So you're going to you're going to get messed up. And that that's not that's not out of character with this system. Because remember the um the d6 table you roll on if you're taken out of action that same that's that's here as well um it hasn't changed really at all except that it doesn't have the uh the irreverent language for instance for six when you die it just says the character dies as opposed to in the first edition it said not alive anymore and i always liked the the humor and irreverence in the wording of that but there's still a good chance that you'll end up disfigured or uh you know permanently wounded like you know with your strength or decks going down permanently and this idea that a character who makes it to higher levels in this system is gonna bear the scars of their adventuring life whereas you think of a fifth edition character as looking much the same as they did at first level you don't think of them getting you know bashed up and scarred and disfigured and stuff the way that you would if you fought monsters for a living you know your body <clears throat> 12 damage on the body list here is a crushed heart that sounds like you would die although then again taking 12 points of damage at lower levels would certainly kill you um bloody stump for your leg so you, your leg is gone if you take too much damage so i really like this table and i have printed it out and taken it along to sessions but i still haven't been brave enough to use it just because um it would definitely change the way you thought of your character's progression, you know. Um you would you would have to start thinking of your of your character as a very 
a very visibly unpleasant um, survivor of hardship. I don't know. I don't know if there's a polite way to say this, but, you know, it maybe adds a little bit of um, a combination of realism because you would get messed up if you fought monsters a lot. And um, because the because the the options themselves are so over the top, a bit of comic bookiness to it. Um, not in the superhero type where the superheroes never get messed up, but in the way that, you know, you could have like a really gory horror comic and, you know, go into ridiculous levels of gore and disfigure, disfigurement and dismemberment. Now, leveling up has changed. Um, in the original Black Hack, um, basically... The GM decided when you leveled up, which is <clears throat> I use that in fifth edition. I mean, it's technically referred to as the milestone system, but especially if you're homebrewing adventures, um, and even if you're running a, a published adventure, you know you still have the discretion to decide where the milestones are. But you basically, I basically level people up when I feel that they've done something significant, when they've accomplished something that's you know okay. After that, you guys can level up. Um. So I feel like it is a pretty good system. Um, obviously, most old school systems had experience points and everybody needed different, had a different experience thresholds for leveling up. So it does undermine that. Um, but it's been changed for, the, for second edition. So the Black Hack uses an abstract system of experiences to measure a character's development as they adventure and grow in power. Unlike many other games, characters don't earn points incrementally. All that matters is that the character is able to experience enough things that will change them as a person. So they give some examples, um, a bullet-pointed list of, of things um, that are, are, are big enough experiences that it would be worth leveling up. Um, and some of them are... are um, obvious like defeating a powerful named enemy i like the last one failing so spectacularly and in such dramatic fashion that everyone around the table agrees is worth it i really like that one because most of the other things on the list are successes and that having this one even if it is just tacked on at the end reminds you that in a role-playing game failing can be a lot of fun um Role-playing games can be a great opportunity to fail spectacularly with no actual consequences because it's just a game and you all get to go home and live your life as normal afterwards. So, you know, one of the things that I like to do if I'm pretty sure a character of mine is going to die soon, that we've got ourselves into a situation where we're not getting out alive, is pull out all the stops and go out in a blaze of glory or lack of glory you know, once you've got nothing to lose, just instead of cowering in a corner and waiting for the inevitable, just rush off and just make, I don't know, make something worthy of talking about afterwards. So, um, I really like having that one on there, but it's not just the experiences that are part of the leveling up. You have to use them in a certain way. So once a character has acquired a number of experiences equal to their current level, they may share them to gain a level. E.g., a level 2 character would need to share two experiences to advance a level. 
So, sharing experience. In order for the character to share their experiences, they must go carousing and regale their companions in revelry with stories of their exploits and growing renown. A player who wishes their character to share experiences must tell the other players one very short story from their character's past over a round of drinks and toasts for each experience they wish to share. The player should roll one's d6 for each story told. This is the cost in coins that must be paid for accompanying drinks and feasting. If they don't have the coin, the GM will determine the amount of debt they owe and to whom. Find the highest result rolled on any of the d6s and consult the carousing table below. So then there's a carousing table, which includes your fine from ba for bad behavior, roll all the d6s again, adding to the cost, a drunken brawl, lose a number of max HP equal to the character's level and regain them next session. Charisma text, tests have advantage for the remainder of the session. That's fame, so you've gone carousing and now you're famous. Revelry, roll a d20. If it's higher than your charisma, you get one point of charisma. Five, a real story. Alter your background. And six, secrets revealed. Gain an entirely new background. So one of the things, we haven't got to character creation yet, but you'll choose a background. And it's possible that when you level up, you might roll to where you get to change or entirely revise your background. Um, so this is a really interesting mechanic. So first of all, there's the example of things that count as experiences, which are, you know discovering a new level of a dungeon, defeating a big en en enemy, or having a big spectacular failure. And you need to you need to get as many of those, you need to get a number of those equal to your current level. But you don't get to level up unless you go carousing and share your experiences. But I guess because the experiences that you literally gain to level up happened with all the players at the table what you share is a story from your character's backstory because there's no need to tell your your adventuring companions about the adventure they were just on so it's interesting um i have a feeling that it might not always work out at the table if the group isn't one of these groups that's really good at coming up with character backgrounds because there's not a list of backgrounds there's suggestions for inventing a background but it's not like 5e where there's these are the these are the backgrounds you can have and the mechanical benefits they give they give you so things like uh usage dice and encumbrance and stuff all work uh more or less the same as they did in the black hack first edition so the backgrounds thing is new for character creation. Um, you should be able to gain some kind of advantage from it. Um, again, there's not a list of backgrounds. There is, however, a D12 table of inspiration, including things like f sold to a wizard as a child or um, survived an arcane exam, ex arcane disaster. By the way, a great many of the random tables in here are D12 tables. So, because um, I think uh, the number of items on the table um, usually has some kind of connection to the the 
the tone of the table. You know, there's the uh, the the massive D100 tables that some people have. There's the D30 tables that um, have been becoming more and more popular. There's the 2D6 style tables you get in like maze rats and things, and uh, D12 tables. Um, there's also, I mean, D20 tables and stuff. So, but yeah, a, a lot of these tables are D12 tables. The character classes, um, you've got your warrior, and what a warrior can do, um, a warrior can is self-reliant so they can um, re-roll a result of one on a broken armor die, so they're, they're a little bit better at repairing their armor than other characters they also have a pool of damage dice which are d6s and it's um equivalent to the number of hit dice they have um when making an attack they can distribute any number of these damage dice among any foe any number of nearby targets now that's not the ones in melee range that would be close targets so that means they uh a warrior with a lot of damage dice can uh, go ahead and damage people who aren't even standing in melee range. That's pretty cool. It's an interesting take on the multi-attack or things like cleave um, that you get in some other games where you're allowed to cleave through one opponent and go right on to the next one. For each target the player assigns the damage dice, the player must come up with an exciting, bespoke narration for the attack. So you don't just get to do it automatically. If you're going to be playing strictly by these rules, you have to come up with some kind of in-game justification for why you can damage that person who's not even standing close to you. Then you make an attribute test for each target to see if it is hit. If so, roll the damage dice assigned to it and reduces HP by that amount. So it's basically, instead of making an attack roll, you decide who you're going to attempt damage before you make the attack rolls and how you could be reasonably expected to damage them. And then you make your, um, your attack rolls um, to see if they hit. The pool of damage dice resets at the start of the warrior's turn. That's a pretty cool thing. I I kind of like that, and I also feel like it makes the warrior special. The, you know, the warriors and fighters are kind of the most vanilla of the traditional character classes, and and as such, they need they get the less cool stuff, the least amount of cool stuff. So they need the most help in feeling epic, even if they are the most survivable at low levels. Um, you get the shield bash when you are attacked in melee combat whilst holding a shield and you ro your roll to defend is one through five. So remember one is a crit. The attacker takes damage equal to your level. So you defend with your shield and if you roll one to five um, on that, you actually end up bashing the attacker with your shield and they take damage. That's a cool thing too. I noticed that this no longer includes the shatter the shield thing where you can choose to shatter your shield instead of dealing, taking damage. I, uh, I always liked that, that particular mechanic and I'm sorry to see it gone, but the shield bash is pretty cool. Then you've got your thief. What does a thief get to do? 
You roll with advantage when testing dexterity to avoid damages or effects from traps or magical devices. Sneak attack. If a thief has moved silently to get behind a creature and they are unaware of the thief's presence, the thief may make an attack that automatically hits and deals 2d6 plus the thief's level. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, I feel like there's a lot of GMs who would make sure it never happens. Like, I guess if, if they allow you... Um, an ability score test. If they allow you to roll for moving silently and stuff like that, you may have no choice. But I feel like there's a lot of DMs who would find a way to get around that. And just, you know, the, there's a kind of DM that almost never allows the thief to actually sneak around up, sneak up behind somebody and, and be hidden. You get... To roll attribute tests with advantage when performing the following actions, which are delicate tasks, climbing, listening and eavesdropping, moving silently and unseen, understanding written languages, and finding secret things. That's that's more or less the basic and traditional list of thief skills, um, including the two that I don't like. Climbing, I've never liked. And understanding written languages. I don't see why a thief should be able to read spell scrolls. Um, so those are two that I don't personally allow in my game, even though the thief is my favorite class. Um, I feel like a thief can't just climb a vertical surface with no equipment, and I don't see why thieves should be able to read spell scrolls. They're not magic. Uh, deep and murky past. At the start of the gaming session, roll a d10. If the result is below your current level, you can customize or entirely change your background. So, um, not a great... Oh, it's especially at first level, you've got a, a 10% chance of doing this, but you can basically change your background at other random times, not just when you're leveling up. Um, you know, I, I still remain suspicious that this, this whole background mechanic is going to work out at the table, but if it does, if you have a group that are are really into making up elaborate backstories and stuff like that... Um, this could uh, this could actually allow this could uh, make for a lot of really entertaining uh, RPG sessions when you just uh, you keep changing your character's backstory and uh, and um, I don't know yeah there could be quite a lot of good times at the table if it does work out I just I feel like um, there's there's a, a lot of people who are more mechanic based uh, gamers where <clears throat> because there isn't a discrete list. And 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 numbers you can roll on and stuff like that, that that it'll just get lost by the wayside. I find, for instance, in fifth edition that the backgrounds you choose hardly ever come up, except in that they give you a couple of extra uh, skill proficiencies and some um, and some starting equipment that also almost never comes up. Um, but then again, there there are probably an equal number of players. <clears throat> who are very into playing their character's backstory. So for though for groups like that this this stuff could uh, could be very entertaining. A dagger for every occasion, regardless of what the thief is carrying, they can produce a small throwing knife from somewhere about their person. That's pretty cool. Like no matter what, you always have another dagger that you can throw at somebody. That like that's infinitely useful. The cleric, um, they roll with advantage when making a con attribute test to resist poisons or being paralyzed. That's a pretty traditional old school cleric ability. 
Um, they may spend an hour memorizing a number of prayers equal to their level from scrolls or books. Um, I like the way magic is handled in the Black Hack, by the way, where the spell level is equal to the character level, and you can have as many spells as your level. Um, so if you're level 2, you can have two spells to a maximum of levels of spell level 2. I feel like that's easy to remember. Uh, banish undead. A cleric may spend an action to banish all nearby undead by testing their wisdom and adding the creature's HD to the roll. Uh, remember, because it's rolling low, anything you add to your roll makes it less likely to succeed. And there's a there's a more thorough description of the banish undead ability. But that's a that feels like a pretty good um, balanced mechanic. A, a cleric can spend an action on their turn to cast a prayer from memory. Um, no, no, that actually is just that is just a spell casting. That's not getting an extra spell after you're out of spells. For a minute there, I thought that was going to make your spell casting a bit more versatile. All the uh, character class sheets come with uh, their illustrated. Um, and they're all illustrated in the same kind of um it's all it's all black and white but it's very comic booky and the wizard which we get to now is a uh, a topless woman so um be careful if you are playing this with kids she's got a very fancy headdress looks like basically some kind of witch i suppose um so they cast spells in more or less the same way that uh, the clerics do. Um, it's just that their attribute is different. It's uh, intelligence. And... If you roll a 1 for your starting hit points, generate a random magical item as part of your starting equipment. Because you roll hit points, you don't get max hit points uh, for this system. So that's a cool thing a wizard gets. Like, if you're going to go into the dungeon with just one hit point, then you get to take a magical item with you. Um, that's a good way to kind of sugar that pill. So, um, as as in the original Black Hack, um, when you cast the spell, you make, you make an attribute test, adding the spell's level to the roll. Um, and if you've already cast that that spell this session, you roll with disadvantage. And if you fail, the spell is no longer memorized. So you don't just lose the spell slot. You you make an attribute test to decide to determine whether you lose it. And then you have the list of spells and the list of prayers, and they go up to level ten in both cases. And they are more or less um, what you would expect. Um, black hack versions of classic D&D spells. There's a blank character sheet, which of course doesn't have an illustration on it. And then you get finally to the DM section, and that's where you get most of the random tables. Um, there's a lot of GM advice, which um, there wasn't room for really in the first black hack.
So I think that'll about wrap it up for uh, rules. I mean, there there are rules um, for things like um, panicking if you lose your light source, which I think um, is an an interesting mechanic, and I think you could have a lot of fun with that. And there are rules for poisons, drugs, and diseases. Uh, the diseases ones are particularly creative. Both um, you can rule randomly for how you catch the disease, what its effect is, and um, how you cure it. A lot of uh, a lot of these random tables are two d twelve tables, so you roll two d twelves. So there's two columns, and you can mix and match them that way. There's also a D100 magical side effects table. Um, and then there's a lot more advice on starting and homebrewing your own adventures. And that includes um, dungeons, towns, wilderness areas, um, basically a lot more um, of that. Well, there wasn't any really in the, the first Black Hack. Um I mean, the, the game mechanics rules kind of stop around between page 30 and 40. And then the world building and game building stuff, which is largely comprised of random tables, begins after that. And remember, it runs to 126 pages. It does include um, a sample dungeon and a sample um, adventure. Um, some of the really standout tables... I like um, tables for where to find new spells. Um, I really like that because they all feel a bit weird and, and adventurous. Um, a new spell that you want to acquire might be in the god of, or in the possession of Yex, the a petty god of trickery, or tattooed on a prisoner. Things like that. Um, there's some pretty good NPC generators um there's a great drop table for what's on the corpse so basically you just drop some dice on this sheet and whatever it lands on if it rolls a five or a six it's got that item on it um i love the drop tables that's a that's a really great thing it's a lot of fun to use those things um there's a there's a lot of the, so the, a lot of the uh, tables are for gener the early ones are for generating hex maps. Um, it's pretty cool and it will give you a, a nice short and sweet and kind of rough and ready Gonzo feel. I haven't used it much personally because I'm using the D30 sandbox uh, tables to build my wilderness um, wilderness area however i did build a settlement just to test the system now um for a lot of these uh generators for settlements for dungeons for rooms in the dungeon and stuff um there's a really cool pattern to the to the random tables um it's basically there's a d4 followed by a D6, followed by a D8, followed by a D10, followed by a D12. And each one of those generates a different aspect of what you're, of what you're building. So basically, you just roll all your dice except for the D20 and look at what you've got. So it's really fun to use that. Um, and so some of the results I got... So I rolled up a hostile and unwelcoming suburban town of squat thatched yurts ruled by a mad warrior king bent on a mass building project. I uh, generated a tavern 
using the system is the tavern is the bloodied axe and nail it is accessible through a pocket dimension there are hundreds of impaled daggers all over the floor um, the entertainment is a boxing match between a giantess and six bare-chested barbarians and notable patrons include an obese debt collector and a wild naked wizard so you can't get much more gonzo than that um for starting an adventure, it recommends that you start with an inciting incident. So there's a table. Uh, it's one of the 2D12 tables. Um, and I really like this because if you're starting a campaign, especially for people who are new to the system or maybe don't have a lot of time, this is a good way to just start with something crazy and action-packed that gets people invested in playing the game. And then you can take a step back and build up to the next adventure by, by doing more time-consuming exploring and role-playing. But the inciting incident I rolled up was the party is locked in an alchemist's lab and only violent insects know the way out. Um, I love... I, I imagine these would be giant insects and that you might have to do something like... Well, figure out how to communicate. They might not necessarily be able to speak the common language, so you might have to figure out some way to communicate them or read their gestures or something like that. But they would be kind of hostile as well. It sounds like an interesting scenario to me. Um, there's uh, adventure hook generators, and I, I ruled up uh, retrieve all or part of the location of a magic vault. The parchment that details its location has been split into three parts. The party happened to have the key um, key to this vault, though it may not be widely known. So you could give them something they already have and they need to find the remaining parts, but they also get to discover what, what they're all already carrying. I ruled up a dungeon. So I got a hidden entrance. Um, the dungeon itself is constructed from the stone heart of a dead god. It was built by a king and his army of slaves as a quarry for magical materials. So I put in parentheses that the dungeon is actually a meteor. Now that wasn't ruled off the table, but whenever I roll random stuff, I start thinking of, well, how would that actually work in play? So it's like, well... If a, a giant meteor fell to Earth, something that you could actually carve a structure out of, um, maybe people would have thought that, oh, a, a god died and his heart fell to Earth, you know, so that would be the rumor, and that the, the, the meteoric metal might well have magical properties, or even scientific properties that just people don't understand and perceive as magic. So, it rains inside, Now I rolled that up, but I decided that um, that would be because the ionized material of the meteor draws water to the ceiling until the critical mass of the water causes it to fall like rain. So you would perceive it as a magical effect, but there would actually be a scientific explanation behind it as well. So I'm start already at this point I was starting to draw kind of a sci-fi crossover uh, dungeon. You know, once the, once the water falls as rain, the process begins over again. The inhabitants, an undead horde using well-maintained but mundane gear. So uh, that could be interesting. So they'd be basically like zombies and skeleton, but they wouldn't have weapons. They would have some kind of tools. Maybe they were, 
I mean, they could be mining tools, although, you know, you could use a pickaxe as a weapon, but maybe that's it. Like, it it can be used effectively as a weapon, and it was good gear because they're mining meteoric metal, but it they were they weren't sent in there originally to fight they have been raised yes yeah, so they've been raised to search for gold but there is no gold here um of course the adventurers will probably be bringing gold pieces with them so if the zombies or skeletons are seeking gold once they once the adventurers come near them they'll be like ooh gold and they'll attack them with their pickaxes so they'd be in a way they're standard undead that you have to kill but they're killing you for a very different reason it's more like faulty programming um their leader is a brutal cannibal war mage who reanimates the skeletons of his meal so at this point i must have thought oh i'm definitely going to make them skeletons rather than zombies so he eats people and then reanimates their skeletons and tells them to mine this um this dungeon for uh for gold. Um the hidden entrance um is in the shadow of a standing stone. It's closed and unlocked. There's um I drew a fatal trap and then I had to figure out the trap myself, so I decided it was an illus uh, an illusory wall with an unusual echo. Um behind which is a detectably magic cloak, and if donned, it leads to a deadly area far away. There'd be warning graffiti to give them clues. And there's thousands of scuttling bugs. Um, and so, yeah, basically, if uh, if you put the magic cloak on and and walk through the wall, you get teleported to a deadly area. And that's the deadly trap. That's about as far as I got um, in this um, this first batch of experimenting. But these these charts are a lot of fun to roll on. Um, I also used it to uh, roll up my latest dungeon that I'm using for my players because I was in a hurry. I basically had to do it within um, within one day. It was like I was going to run a game that night. So around lunchtime, I got out the black hack and started rolling up. Um, the dungeon that they were going to go through. And I, I already had the concept down for uh, for what I wanted from it. Um, I wanted it to basically be some underground caverns um, populated by uh, uh, ghouls, a ghoul lair. But um, it was good for, you know... Um, deciding what where where there would be tricks and where there would be treasure um i i rolled up fast flowing water running down stairs so uh um that that fit with the the swampy area that it was in um one area is shrouded in mist and you hear faint childlike giggling and the air seems peculiarly fresh, which is weird if you're in a, a dank underground cavern in a swamp area. Um, I wouldn't have put that in. I ruled it from the tables. Um, I decided it would make a nice safe area. It's like magically protected and that's why the air smells fresh and things like that. Um, there was some good, there's some good uh, ways for ruling on traps to give you clues to how it operates and things. Um, so I found it really good to roll up an interesting dungeon quickly. Um, I, I would use something maybe more like the Tome of Adventure design if I had a lot of time, because those are bigger tables and it's a bigger book and you need to kind of take your time and navigate it properly. But these you can just basically go through page by page and like, like I said, get your handful of dice, roll it, and it's great. 
Um, the only criticism I have of these tables is that, especially on the D12 ones, there's usually a note that says that once you once you roll something on that D12 table, cross it out and replace it with something of your own. Now, I mean, that's fair enough because D12 tables are not very long, long and you can't be using the same results over and over again or the crazy ideas are going to get stale. But on the other hand, I, I sort of felt like, well, one of the reasons you're going to invest in the black hack is because of its tone. And if you could mimic that tone yourself, you wouldn't need to invest in the black hack. So it's like, I felt, I felt like if I use this, this a lot and I keep replacing it with my own stuff, it'll end up not really being the black hack, except mechanically. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it's a very mild criticism because, you know, ultimately you should be slowly developing your own tables and you should always be putting your own spin on the ideas and stuff like that but my first impression when i saw that was like hey man if i wanted to come up with my own tables i wouldn't have bought this uh this product and especially um was interested in this product product because of the uh the wild punk rock irreverent tone that it has you know it's it's fun it's dangerous and challenging um but it's also a little bit cheeky, a little bit. Um, there's a, there's an element of black humor to it. Um, that that's a, I think I think it's a real hallmark of it. So um, I think that's uh, probably enough of a discussion of the black hack too. Um, the the headline is. Um, it's definitely worth getting. Um, and it also is in every way an improvement upon the original black hack, which was already a very strong product. Um, I'm really, I, I'm really excited about the armor dice. I think that alone, um, just, just improves it so much. And, um, the, uh, the random tables, um, you could use those to generate a lot of, a really interesting, unique, surprising, um, fun, and yet very deadly uh, adventures um, of that kind of inimitable black hack style. Um, it's just such a fun system. And, you know, despite the fact that it's 126 pages long, um, it's still actually very light. It still feels lighter than, for instance, the white hack. I'm going to save talking about the white hack... Um, for a future episode now um one last thing though um in the uh the sample dungeon that the black hack 2 gives you um the keying the 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 description of the dungeon rooms uh it uses pretty much the same style that courtney campbell uses in his mega dungeon zine and i was super excited to see that because i feel like that is the best way to key a dungeon room um and uh it really fits the the stripped down you know less is more style of this uh this rule set anyway um so i'm super excited about that because basically so now there's two people doing this um keying their dungeons that way hopefully this becomes the norm and we won't have any lengthy descriptions of a single room where the uh, author in love with their sound of their own voice jaws on for hours and hours. Um, anyways, yeah, I would definitely check this out. Um, and I, uh, the armor points was one of the things I wouldn't have stolen from the original 
black hack, but I would steal the armor dice. I think that's a so that's another another great idea to to use in your own games. Tomorrow is uh, the first day of December, so uh, I'll I'm considering trying to do something for D and December. So a lot of uh, shorter posts, um, possibly using the prompts, possibly not, but we'll see. Until then, play well and let the dice fall where they may.